This is Keeping the Faith on the Mormon Faircast. The Keeping the Faith series explores ways in which our faith can be challenged and ways in which we can overcome those challenges. Bill Reel, welcome to the Mormon Faircast. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be on. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, of course, my name is Bill Reel. I live in Sandusky, Ohio, which is a smack dab between the cities of Cleveland and Toledo. If anybody's ever heard of uh, Cedar Point, the great amusement park, I live about uh, about a mile away from that. Um, I'm a convert to the church. I am 34 years old, and uh, just I, I love Mormonism. I, I love my faith, so glad to be on and glad to have a chance to talk with you. All right. Now, one of the things that people are usually interested in with uh, people we interview is what uh, types of things you're doing in the church now. Uh, what is your calling in the church? Well, currently I serve as a bishop uh, in the Sandusky Ward in the Cleveland, Ohio Stake. Okay. And why don't we go back then to uh, your early experiences. Maybe in your case, you're you're a convert to the church, right? Correct. And so what was your experience like before you joined the church? What uh, uh, what was your experience with religion? Um, you know what, what? What you know? What was your life like before you joined? Absolutely, um, I come from a family of uh, me and my brother, uh, my mom and dad. Uh, my dad, I guess I would call him a believer in God, but he never proclaimed uh, any specifics on that. He simply believed there was a supreme being, and and never cared to take it any further than that. My mother was a Baptist growing up. She stopped going to church around the age of 16 or so. Uh, so it's just me and my brother. We were four years apart. I'm the older of the two. We we never went to church growing up. The only time I ever stepped foot in a church was to go to a wedding or to a funeral. We had a family Bible in the home, but my parents, I don't think, ever opened it. Uh, my, my entire time living in the home with them, uh, once in a while, just out of interest, I would open it up and they'd have some pictures and stuff inside or I'd try to read some of it. But generally speaking, really no interest in religion. It uh, it just wasn't something that had a place in our home. I, I grew up with a great family. My my parents were wonderful. I wouldn't take my childhood back for nothing. Um, it was just an, just an awesome experience. But my only time ever really considering uh, God was when uh, I wanted to, to pray and ask him if he would send me a girlfriend or if he would uh, make sure my parents knew what I wanted for Christmas but outside of that, I never took time to speak to him or talk to him. So I guess you'd call me agnostic uh, up until I encountered the church. Um, when I was around the age of 12 or so, I started using uh, uh, alcohol. I hung around with the wrong crowd. They were they were good kids, but they were just making bad choices. Uh, around the age of 14 or so, I started using drugs. Even for a short time while I was in high school, I was um, I was selling some drugs as well. Wow. And so you talked about how you, you did pray once in a while. How often did that happen? Oh, it would have been very sporadic, maybe once or twice a year. And it was only when I needed something. I wasn't thanking him for anything. I wasn't uh, asking my Heavenly Father to, to bless anybody around me. It was it was simply a, a self-centered plea to, to try and get um, the things that I wanted. You know, being a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or and wanting a new bicycle... Um, I'd sit up in my bed at night and just ask him if he would, if he would get me a bike, or like I say, if I was a little older, fourteen, fifteen, I'd, I'd ask him to to send a pretty girl my way that that would be interested in me. So, just kind of those, I guess, doubting that there was a God, but but when I needed something, venturing off to ask him for it. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? You got it. <laughs> uh, so, how is it that you became interested in the Mormon Church? Well, when I was. At the end of my six, being 16 or just turned 17, I started working at a fast food restaurant, and there was a girl there that caught my eye. It, it seems like with a lot of us who are converts, it seems to start that way. So a girl caught my eye, and I wanted to ask her out, uh, but I was too afraid, as, as a lot of us guys are. We're afraid of being rejected. And, and so while I worked up the courage, um, she called and ended up asking me on a date. And so we began dating, and that was going really well. And after about uh, three or four dates or so, I discovered that she's a Latter-day Saint. And after uh, a few other dates, she asked me to uh, to go to church with her and her family. 
And that was, I guess, both a good and a bad experience. Um, the three-hour block meeting ran so that the first uh, hour was young men's, um, and then after that was Sunday school, and then uh, and then sacrament. And so going to uh, young men's, the lesson was on the Godhead. And the teacher, and I remember this to this day, the teacher had, uh, there were three different chalkboards in the room. And on one chalkboard he wrote Heavenly Father, on the next one he wrote Jesus Christ, and on the third one he wrote Holy Ghost. And he said, the lesson today is on the Godhead, and we're going to explain to you what the characteristics and traits of each member is. And so he started to ask the class to describe each one of these personages within the Godhead. And as he did so, right away, and I, I don't know how to explain it other than to say it was a, a spiritual experience, having not had any religious upbringing, as this lesson was going on, right away I picked up that I already knew these things. I already knew it. And I don't know how, because any little conversation I had had about religion in school uh, were from people whose religious faith had a Trinitarian view. And so there was nowhere along the way that I was taught they were three different beings. But as the teacher went on through the class, I was strongly impressed that these were things I already held to be true and already knew them. So I had this awesome experience in young men's. After that, I go to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, the teacher was giving a lesson out of the book of Alma. And she was doing a wonderful job teaching the lesson. The problem was is that in this group of the older youth, None of them were paying attention. They were all uh, talking to each other, passing notes kind of back and forth, kind of as, you know, what we traditionally sometimes find in, in, in our classes in the church. And that kind of caught me off guard because here I just come from this class where I felt, you know, there might be something to this. And I'm also, you know, really interested. And then all of a sudden it kind of comes crashing down where I say to myself, if this is so important, why don't these, uh, why don't these youth take advantage of it? And so it was kind of this dichotomy of, of both the good and the bad in our, our experience in church at times. But I went home and thought about it and uh, asked the missionaries if they would start teaching me. So I started taking the discussions. I remember going to a fireside where the sister missionaries that were in our ward were there. And uh, this was a fireside at a member's home. And there were a couple of investigators there and three or four member families. And the sisters gave me a Book of Mormon and asked me if I would would read it and pray about it as I took the discussions. And so I made a promise to myself at that time that I would read the whole thing. And uh, in the process of reading and taking the discussions, uh, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to know everything. I, I just This was new. I asked my mom. I said, Mom, what do you know about the Mormons? And she said, I don't know much about them. She goes, those are the people out west who have lots of wives. And so... So that was the only thing I really knew about the church, and I wanted to know more. So one day at school, I went to my uh, school library and looked up what I could find on the church, and there was very little there, a couple of encyclopedias with a brief entry, but it wasn't enough to, to appease me. So I checked out our local city library, and uh, right in the middle, of, this is kind of right in the middle of taking the discussions. I'm probably a third of the way through uh, the Book of Mormon at this point, and as I look up uh, things on the church in the library, I come across a biography on the Prophet Joseph Smith, and I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is going to be the most exciting thing. In my head, I don't know why I thought this, but I had this naive view that that the church is true. You know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of get this feeling that there's something to this, and I feel like it, you know the library is going to have all these awesome books on the church, and so I'm going to be able to find out all this great information. Well, it turns out the biography that they had was a book written by Fawn Brody titled No Man Knows My History. And not realizing that that was a book written by essentially a critic of the church, I borrowed from the library, took it home, started reading it. As I made my uh, way through it, even at the very beginning, I realized all of a sudden that this was the complete opposite uh, of what the missionaries had taught me. Uh, up to this point. And so I was devastated, but I couldn't put it down. I had to keep reading it. And so as I made my way through the book, I probably got uh, two-thirds of the way through it. And I knew that I had to ask some questions. I had to I had to see what what the response was from uh, from the members of the church on this on this book and the things that it brought up. So I I asked my girlfriend's parents if I could sit down and talk with them. And uh 
said, hey, you know, I, I borrowed this book from the library. These are the things I'm reading. Here's the issues I'm running into. And both of them are great, great people, but they're not scholars in regards to being able to answer those types of questions. And so they both bore strong testimony to me. They encouraged me to be open about whatever questions I had, but they weren't really giving the solid answers that I needed, if that makes sense. Right. So as I'm kind of plugging along, I'm still reading the Book of Mormon. I'm reading this book. I need to find answers. And so this is obviously early on in the Internet. Uh, but I start getting online on my on my computer at home and start getting on to uh, AOL's uh, Mormon chat. There was a site back then called Book of Mormon Answer Man. And so I began to, and the way Book of Mormon Answer Man was set up, of course, AOL chat, you could just go in in the chat room and you could talk with other live people and throw out questions. But Book of Mormon Answer Man was set up a little different. People would send him questions, and then him and those who, who were uh, also working with the site would then post answers. And so it was an easy way to kind of see, you know, the 50 most difficult questions people were asking and to get answers from from a, a Latter-day Saint and from a faithful perspective. So that appeased those feelings of, of worry or concern. And so at that point, um, I moved how forward. Old, how old were you by this time? Uh, 17 years old. Okay. And so were those those questions coming from No Man Knows My History or coming from elsewhere? Uh, for the most part, No Man Knows My History. But then as you go on to... AOL Mormon chat and try to have a discussion where you're getting your questions answered other people are in there asking other questions and when you go on to Book of Mormon Answer Man you may be looking for a specific issue but in the midst of reading that one you're also reading hundreds of other questions that people are asking so you're right away encountering lots of difficult issues but luckily you're also in a place where answers are being freely given as well mm -hmm. so at that point um, I began to see Number one, how encompassing Mormonism was. I don't know that members really realize that as young as our church is, how broad it reaches into different um, different issues, different lines of thinking, different uh, places to explore within its history or theology. I just find I find Mormonism to be such a, a depth of richness. Um, and even at this, you know, I hadn't even joined the church yet, and I'm beginning to realize just how beautiful it is. Uh, so, you know, it was it was amazing. At that point, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of examining all the issues, all the complexities. I'm still you're, you're reading the Book of Mormon. Correct. Well, I'm, I'm making my way and, through and it. And how is that impacting you? To me, it was beautiful. My father-in-law lent me the Book of Mormon on tape. And so I'm reading it on my own, and then at night as I'm laying down to go to bed, I would put the cassettes in and play them as I'm going off to sleep just to try and reiterate some of the things I had read that day. Um, to me, the Book of Mormon was beautiful. The Book of Mormon has never been a problem for me. The Book of Mormon has just always been something that... I, recently, and this is kind of... We're going to kind of bounce around a little bit, but recently I, I've taken kind of an assignment of taking the Book of Mormon in essentially looking at it just from the perspective of trying to find out more about the atonement and the doctrine of Christ and reading through it, just highlighting those things. And I'm amazed at just how much depth there is in there about the Savior, about his atonement, and about faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. So the Book of Mormon was never an issue. The Book of Mormon was just, I don't know, a beautiful book. Now, it sounds like you had some sort of conversion experiences really early on in investigating the church. So you, you go to young men's and you have this sense that what they're talking about with respect to the Godhead is true. And you're reading the Book of Mormon and you're feeling that the Book of Mormon is, is valuable and, and you're learning from it. And, uh, and at the same time, you're reading Fon Brody. But um, I, I could just imagine, you know, the missionaries who were teaching you at the time would want to, you know, rush you right into baptism. How long did this process take? You know, I'm going to guess probably from the moment I started reading, uh, which I started dating my wife in December of 96. And I joined the church in April of 97. I probably didn't start going to church with her until late January or so. And so we're probably talking from beginning to end, um, 
maybe three, four months. Okay. And so were the missionaries asking you to be baptized and you were saying, no, I got to wait, or did they just not ask you, or how did that how did that go? I think the meetings with the missionaries, of course, I'm trying to draw back 17 years ago, but I think the meetings with the missionaries were very kind of sporadic at first, and it wasn't until I was um, showing a solid interest that we were meeting kind of on a regular basis working towards baptism. I remember the moment they posed baptism, I didn't have any issue with it. I did tell them I wanted to receive an answer first, that I felt like I deserved that. Um, I know sometimes we'll, we'll be teaching investigators and they'll say they're not getting an answer. And sometimes we'll just encourage them to, to perhaps act on faith first and then the answer will come. Uh, but for me, I wanted to have the answer first. You know, it sounds like that in some respects you had an answer that you didn't quite recognize. Correct. Think that's fair to say. Absolutely. There were definitely experiences with the Holy Spirit that, that I felt that I knew that I recognized, but at the same time, the missionaries are telling me that in Moroni 10, three through five, here's this special experience that you're promised to have. And so I was holding out for that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you feel like, well, Moroni's made this promise. I want to experience that. And until I do, then you know i'm not i'm not going to fully commit myself is that kind of the mindset exactly yep so what happened well at that point obviously there's a lot of things going on i'm a 17 year old kid i don't have any members of the church in my family i'm i'm dealing with both the critical material and the faithful perspective i'm feeling spiritual experiences about the things that i'm learning from the missionaries but at the same time i'm having questions raised as well and so kind of a neat thing happened. I'm at school one day, and I'm still kind of a troublemaker, so I decide to skip class, and I get caught. And in getting caught, I got a three-day in-school suspension. And so while I sat up in the uh, in the classroom where all the kids went for, for that suspension, I would finish my homework about the first hour, the classwork about the first hour of the day, and I'd spend the rest of the day reading the Book of Mormon. So by the end of this three-day period, I essentially had finished the book just about. I was getting right near the end. And... I was taking the last discussion or two from the missionaries, and one of the things that they were teaching me was the Word of Wisdom, which was really my only hang-up. I was drinking coffee, iced tea, you know, and, and the other things in there I was abusing as well. So one night, I get finished reading the Book of Mormon. I've completed it, and I kneel down by my bedside, and I ask Heavenly Father, you know, I've completed the book. Uh, I'm praying about it now. I, I would love an answer. Um, you've made a promise that you'll give the honest seeker an answer to confirm that, that this is what you want them to do, this is the church you want them to join, that the book is true, that, that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And so I prayed for some time. An answer didn't come, though. And I, I remember feeling really sad, crying a little bit, feeling like the missionaries had made this promise. Perhaps their critical material was true because I hadn't got the answer that I needed. So I, I crawled into bed and I go to sleep. The next day I get up. And my girlfriend comes over, and we're sitting there talking, and we're talking about the Word of Wisdom, because essentially she's saying, are you ready for baptism? And I'm saying, well, I am, but but here's the problem. I, I can understand giving up drugs. That makes a lot of sense. I can understand not using alcohol or tobacco. That that makes sense. But iced tea makes no sense to me at all, and I don't see what the problem is with wanting to drink iced tea. And so she's trying to give her answer to why that is, and at that moment, just this awesome experience happened where the Lord essentially stopped me in my tracks, shared with me that everything the missionaries were te was teaching were true. He, he impressed upon me some thoughts or feelings about things that were going to happen in my life. And my, my girlfriend is sitting there. She, she realizes that something's going on. And when it's all said and done, I mean, she realizes that there's there's some spiritual experience occurring, but she doesn't, she's not uh, experiencing the same thing I am. And so here I am having received this wonderful answer, and so I look over at her and I say, you don't need to explain anymore. I know it's true, and I'm ready to move forward. And so I got baptized. Oh, that's great. So what, what happened then in terms of your... Uh experience with the church, you know, your experience, you said your girlfriend, I guess, uh, she later became your wife? Correct. I ended up marrying her uh, when I turned 19, and uh, so we got married in the Washington, D.C. temple. 
when I when I joined the church and got baptized, I I took the church very seriously. I mean, having gone through this this whole ordeal of learning all the difficult issues or most of them anyway, and in looking into all this apologetic information, it's not like walking into the church just because it's a beautiful thing. I'm walking in because of all this extra stuff that's going on as well. And because of all these experiences with with the negative and the positive, I'm kind of taking this with me. And so the church is this serious thing. I'm not going to play around. It's it's not something to take lightly. And so I just I sought to know everything I could. I was I I took it serious to read my scriptures as I went off to college. I was going to a local community college here in Sandusky and Actually, it's in the next town over in Huron. And as I'm going to this community college, I've got some space in between classes. And up at their computer lab, there was no cost for printing things. And so I would spend my time, on again, on Book of Mormon Answer Man, AOL Chat. Uh, as a couple of years passed, Shields and Fair and Farms began to make a presence on the Internet. I started printing off everything I could find. And so even to this day, I still have a, a bunch of stuff uh, in a cabinet here at home that I printed off as I had just joined the church and was looking for things. Uh, now, now in that early period then, you know, you joined when you were, did you say 17 or 18? 17 years old. So did you consider going on a mission? I, I did a little bit. The, uh, the bishop in our ward at the time called me into his office and, uh, and he asked me, he said, you know, the, the, the men, the men in this church, are encouraged to go on missions, and I'm interested to know if you'd like to go on a mission. And uh, I shared with him that that I didn't really have the the means to do that. I knew there was a cost because as the missionaries were teaching me, they're sharing with me what was all involved in going on a mission. I shared with him that, that you know the cost would be prohibitive, and and he shared with me that that they would find a way to overcome that. And I I came up with some other excuses. I I turned it down, and so I didn't serve a mission. I wish I had. As I look back. I've had a member or two in my ward over the years look at me and say, well, you know, Brother Real did fine. He didn't go on a mission. I usually stop him right there in the tracks and try to tell him that when I look over the expanse of my life, there's one thing I truly regret not doing, and that's serving the Lord on a, on a full-time mission as a 19-year-old. And so I wish I had done that. Instead, I, I got married right away, and I, I'm glad I did that as well. But having talked to my wife some years later about that experience, you know, she said, hey, you should have gone. You should have told me you were feeling that way. Uh, we would have, you know, we would have supported you. We would have, and I'd have been here when you got back, and it would have all worked out well. But for whatever reason, I turned a mission down. Hmm. Okay, so you're going to community college, and you're continuing to research, you know, doctrine and history, and you know, issues that you're uh, confronting with respect to the church. Correct. And uh, along this whole path, even obviously investigating the church, and even little bits along the way. Um, I'm finding difficult issues from time to time. You know, I'm I'm finding things about things that were said in regards to the priesthood being uh, withheld prior to 1978. I find little bits and pieces of of Adam God and, and Brigham Young uh, mentioning some of those things. Some of the stuff with seer stones and things like that. And so I'm I'm encountering issues that are giving me reason to doubt. And then as I'm encountering these, I'm running back and, and looking in places for faithful perspectives and I'm finding uh, answers to those questions that I have so there's these kind of mini faith crises that are going on um, that are essentially posing a problem for me constantly but not um, not continuously if that makes sense so I would have a week or two here that I would really struggle and then I'd find a good answer and I'd put that behind me and I would move forward and I'd be good for a month or a month and a half and and then as I'm continuing to try and learn and soak things in, I'd find something else, and we'd be right back at it again. Um, after a while, it seemed like the evidence is uh, mounted up in favor of the church. And so looking back now, I can see where I was starting to build my testimony intellectually rather than focus it on spiritual issues um, to the point where I felt like an open-minded person um, when I talk about the fact that the, the positive evidences are mounting up, it got to a point where I felt like an open-minded person would have no problem accepting the LDS church uh, as the Lord's true church. In other words, whenever I'd go out with the missionaries and teach people, I just had this expectation that, hey, if I tell them everything that's out there to know, there's no reason why they're not going to want to join. 
and I just expect everybody to want to join the church. And I don't realize till later on that not everything is so uh, black and white or cut and dry, and that there are some things within the church's history or within uh, Mormonism at large that cause one to pause and reflect and try to figure out. Um, I didn't realize it at the time. My faith, while having a spiritual experience as a large part of my foundation, um, everything from there on up was built on intellectual information. So you kind of felt at the time that if you were able to set out all of the facts, that an investigator would almost be compelled to accept the, the, the truthfulness of the church. Correct. Yeah, I, I was making an effort to help others see the intellectual evidence of the church rather than calling on people to rely on the Holy Ghost. And I didn't see that as problematic at the time. I just figured, hey, look at I have this this whole cabinet full of papers that that, you know, show all the wonderful miracles and things that have occurred and, you know, all this information on the church that just proves that it's true. And so I just assumed that that if I shared this with anybody, anybody would no doubt just say, Hey, yeah, let's let's get baptized, let's join. And so I had essentially made my testimony a logical testimony. And I didn't realize at the time, but that's troublesome because it's built on a whole bunch of puzzle pieces that have to fit. And if one of them doesn't fit, all of a sudden, then uh, then my testimony tower, as I put it, uh, would crash. And so I'm aware probably at this point of about 95% or so of the issues that apologists run into. And uh, And I had built some of my faith upon bad answers to some of those issues. So, like, for example, I remember one time trying to find out why there's a connection between um, our temple ceremonies and, and masonry. And so in researching that, some of the answers I came across online pointed to uh, that going back to the Temple of Solomon, which really isn't a good answer. It really isn't a thorough answer. And so later on down the line, when I come to find out that that really doesn't fit super well, all of a sudden that puzzle piece or that building block is gone. Uh, other ones, for instance, you know, Brigham Young completely was misunderstood when he was accused of teaching the Adam-God theory. Uh, the fact that evolution is absolutely false and scientists are making a giant stretch to make evolution work. I remember one time going into a, a museum with my family. By this time, I've got a couple of kids. And we go into a museum walk into the uh, the area where the dinosaurs are and the very next section I'm talking to my kid about dinosaurs I'm talking about evolution I'm absolutely denouncing it now let me back up a second I realize that within the church one can believe one way or the other on that issue but I came to understand that it wasn't an absolute doctrine of the church that one could not believe or reconcile evolution if that makes sense and so I'm going through and I'm looking at dinosaurs, explaining to my kids that evolution's wrong. And the very next uh, part of this uh, museum is the Lucy statue, the Lucy skeleton, uh, the the old ancestor that was found from Africa, that they had put her bones back together, and essentially said that the human race had descended from her, and she was she was some species before the Homo sapien. And I looked at my kids and I said, you know, this is absolutely crazy. There's there's no way they've taken. You know, 14 bones put her back together, and they're they're claiming that they have this all figured out. As the kids, evolution is absolutely false, and we have we have no reason to believe that whatsoever. So, do not, if anybody ever tells you evolution is true, uh, you don't have to accept that. And so, I had essentially, while knowing the issues, had built answers sometimes on bad information, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and then and that's one of the things I think that uh, I think that's not uncommon that people will find. Uh, bad apologetics and you know kind of base well, you know, maybe that helps them to to shore up some some problems they're having they base a, a testimony on that to some degree and then they're even in a, a worse position when they find out that those answers that they thought were going to help them to respond to critics don't really have the strength that they thought they did and like you said it you know that really pulls the foundation out from under their testimony if that's all their testimony is built on. Right, and that's exactly what happened to me. And I find that sometimes these bad answers, they're the easy answers to give. They don't they don't take much time to share. They they explain it well enough that without having to dive into it, you've got an, you've got an adequate answer that you can move forward on. And obviously as you as you move forward in the church, you realize that some of these difficult issues, you've got to spend 
quite a bit of time delving into original sources, looking at things, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. So well, and sometimes recalibrating your own assumptions, you know, and, and maybe changing your own point of view, which is something that we're, we're often not prepared to do when we start moving into these areas. And you're 100% right there. There, We all have kind of a way of seeing the world, and the way that starts off and the way we kind of progress about thinking about things, a lot of us get into a phase where we see things very black and white, right or wrong. There's no shades of gray, and so it has to fit in one box or the other. And when we see things that way, if there's any little piece that's out of place, all of a sudden we have to automatically set it in the other box. Um, so you're 100% right in, in the fact that when we make bad assumptions, uh, we sometimes kind of set ourselves up to, to really be let down harder later on. So you're moving through this period where you kind of, I guess, vacillate back and forth between sort of a, uh, you know, a mini crisis and, you know, a strong sense of confidence and faith in the church. And so, so how did your experience in the church evolve from there? Well... For the most part, I'm doing really good. Generally speaking, I, I have a testimony most of this time. I am having spiritual experiences from time to time. I'm enjoying reading church history. I'm enjoying reading about this stuff. And then at some point, I kind of move along and realize all of a sudden that things are not black and white, that some of these issues, the easy answer doesn't fit. Um, and so I had to kind of figure out new ways to make things fit. It also didn't help the fact that I had come, I'm from a smaller ward. The ward where I go to has attendance somewhere between maybe 100 to 130 uh, on any given Sunday. In fact, we had 88 last week. Um, being from a smaller ward, kind of in the Midwest, I found myself serving in several leadership callings in the church. If you're active and you've got a testimony, uh, you've got a major calling within the ward. And so from those opportunities, I began realizing that most members are completely unaware of these difficult issues. I kind of knew that to begin with, but, but when you're in a spot of, of teaching and assigning talks and, and training people and doing those things within the ward, you right away realize that a lot of people don't know these things. And so for one example, I gave a talk one time on the translation of the Book of Mormon. And this is probably 10 years ago or so. And so I'm giving a talk on, on the translation, and I'm talking about how Joseph used a seer stone, how he placed it in a hat, and how he excluded the light, and, and at that point he was able to translate by the gift and power of God. And I get finished with the talk, and a member of the bishopric at the time walks up to me and says, I never had a clue that that's how it happened. And so things like that would happen. I remember doing a fireside one time and talking about um, some of the history with Joseph Smith leading up to the translation and and some of the members weren't aware of some of the things that uh, that I had shared. And so I, I recognize that this occurs for a bunch of reasons. I realize well, do you think ahead. that member do you think that member of the bishopric was upset by that or uh, or was it uh just new information and he was taking it in stride? I don't feel like I caught I don't feel like it it caused a negative reaction. I do feel like I caught him off guard. Um I think the look on his face kind of said to me that, hey, I expected to kind of know that by now, and, and I didn't. So that was kind of neat to learn. Hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think that, you know, so often the context in which we hear these things makes such a big difference. So, you know, if we're told by, you know, a, a preacher with a megaphone outside the, the temple, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, Joseph Smith was a polygamist, then uh, that can be a lot more disturbing than if we read about it in an Enzyme article. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's, I, I suppose the way that we encounter these things really makes a big difference. Sure, and I also think that the point you bring up, too, uh, kind of tying into those who are critical, when you go somewhere where it is, you just, everybody, somebody lays all the difficult stuff on you all at once, that tends to be a lot more difficult to overcome as well versus someone in church shares something this week and then three months later you hear something else and you're able to kind of assimilate and reconcile things one at a time. Um, I think one of the, the real downside of, of those who are critical of the church is they really take advantage of the fact that they're throwing this whole load of stuff on you all at once. 
uh, knowing that that's not something easy to to work through, no matter whether we're talking about um, you know something going on in school where you're throwing a whole ton of homework, or whether we're talking the church where someone's throwing difficult issues at you. Yeah, you know, I think too, if we're hearing a talk in church or general conference or reading an Enzyme article or something, and we're feeling a spiritual confirmation that what the speaker is saying is true. And along the way, he happens to mention that, you know, Joseph Smith used a seer stone or, uh, you know, Joseph Smith was a polygamist, you know, one of these you know, different issues that sometimes shake people. Um, you know, if they're feeling a spiritual confirmation of the truth behind, uh, you know, the, the, the church as a whole, as they're being exposed to that information, then it can be much easier to grasp and accept in those circumstances. And you're 100% right there as well. Um, when we have other information being given out along with something perhaps we didn't know, and you're right, when the Spirit testifies of that, then uh, then we shouldn't have any problem kind of moving forward and saying, okay, you know, that fits. So kind of moving into like that next phase, obviously as I'm sitting here and, and giving those uh, this talk on the translation and this fireside and, and having these kinds of conversations, it... It kind of hits me all of a sudden um, that why is it that we don't talk about these things more? Why is it that members seem to be in the dark about these issues? Now, looking back, I realize it's a lot of reasons, mostly because most members don't take time to, to delve into this stuff and to learn these things. And so they're, they're somewhat unaware of them. But, well, you know, you, you can go through your whole life in the church without finding out that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, and you, you can go to the celestial kingdom, you know? I mean, it's, right. it's not necessary to our salvation, and, and so we, we put so much effort into the church in helping people to, you know, to be good Christians, to have faith, to repent, uh, to get close to the Spirit, and uh, when people do come across these issues— um, you know that can that can shake them, and, and it's important for us to address those and, and maybe try to prepare people, uh, because a lot of people, an increasing number of people, are, are being confronted with these issues. But when we're trying to preach the gospel, uh, so many of these issues are really very peripheral to Correct. what we're trying to do in helping people change their lives and become like Christ. Right. They're, they're secondary. And I, and I get that now. I understand that church serves a certain purpose. It's there to give us the, the spiritual strength so that we can get through another week and, and, you know, be able to deal with things that go on within our homes and at work and out and about that, that provide enough adversity on their own. And that when we talk about some of these peripheral issues that, that we're mentioning here, these aren't things, you know, if I sit and have an hour lesson on seer stones, that isn't necessarily going to bring the spirit in. But if I'm talking about faith and repentance and the Holy Ghost, those things are the things that give people the spiritual strength uh, to be able to go through the week. Well, and imagine if you spend you spend one week talking about seer stones and then the next week talking about polyandry and the next week you're talking about uh, uh, masons. And, uh, you know, where where is it that you're going to spend the time to talk about the atonement and talk right. about repentance and faith, uh, you know, and, and so I and and like you say, these things may you know start to 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 build up, and you start thinking, well, uh, you know, there's this issue and this issue and this issue that that are you know maybe um, hard to explain, or maybe they challenge our faith, and the cumulative effect of that could become overwhelming. And you're exactly right. And if we do it that way, if we were to spend our time talking about all these side issues, we would never get to the gospel. And it would be completely left out, and, and that's not the purpose of church. That's not the point of being there for the three-hour block. It's to renew covenants and to be sanctified and to receive spiritual strength to be able to to deal with the everyday problems that uh, come into our lives. And, and to be frank, too, most members don't care about all these side issues. They're, they simply aren't focused on those things. And, and where you know reading about seer stones may be of interest to me, I would bet the majority of members in my ward could probably care less other than to know that the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. Yeah, and you know, I wouldn't blame him for that, and I wouldn't say that anybody needs to find out about seer stones, except for a concern that I may have that they'll stumble upon something at some point, and they will think, 
why didn't I know about this? Why didn't anybody tell me about this? Is the church lying to me? Um, you know, and so then it becomes a problem. So, you know, if, if it's not a problem, if it never becomes a problem, we never really need to talk about it. I guess the problem is, is that it's increasingly becoming a problem because, Correct. you know, so much of the information is there so readily. It's, you know, it's like pornography. You know, you used to have to go out and look for it. And, uh, you know, now it's, you know, piped right into our homes at any point. So if somebody just Googles Joseph Smith, they're going to become confronted with issues that, you know, may shake their testimony. Correct. And, and unfortunately, you know, the Internet in this way has changed the game. And, and that's what happened with me. About, about this time, I had encountered polyandry for the first time. And so if you kind of imagine, here I am, I'm the, I'm the person in the ward who is the most aware of all of these things. I'm the one that people are coming to and asking questions. And I assume that I've got a good feel and a good hold of all of these things. And, yet, and just for, for anybody that doesn't know, polyandry is the, you know, a, a, a man marrying women who are married to other men. Correct. And so having encountered the fact that, that Joseph Smith um, participated in polyandry, I, encountering that for the first time, I realized, wait a minute, here's something that I've, I've spent my whole time in the church um, trying to take time to read these things and understand all the issues. And here's something that I'm confronted with that I didn't know about. And so all of a sudden it becomes very personal, this whole thing about why don't we talk about these things, why are members in the dark? I felt this very personally. Uh, it was something I didn't know. And I didn't recognize that uh, in all the time that I'd spent searching out information, here was there were issues out there that I still wasn't aware of. And so the thought came that the only reason I wasn't told this is because the church isn't true and they've withheld this information from me on purpose. And at that point, this this testimony that I've built just begin to crumble one issue after another. And so all of a sudden, the Book of Abraham is bothering me, whereas before it didn't. Uh, DNA in the Book of Mormon, that issue begins to bother me. Changes in the temple ceremony, those things begin to bother me. And so at this point, I begin making a list in my head of all the issues that are not easily explained or defended. And I, I came to an understanding. The church is not black and white. It is not a perfect puzzle. It is complicated. And that understanding, and that the understanding did not fit my expectation. Um, I kind of felt like all things led to the church. And all of a sudden I realized that there are some issues that are difficult to, to go through, to figure out, to understand. And at that point, um, when my expectations weren't met, uh, I kind of crashed. And so I kind of hit like a major faith crisis. I look back on my life and I realized the sacrifices that I had made for the church. And I felt a sense of betrayal. I felt like they had abused this trust. Like almost the thought came across my mind that they didn't trust me enough to tell me all of these things and to explain them to me. And so all these sacrifices I had made of my friends, my family, uh, my time in the church, um, even the thought of paying money and tithing, my lifestyle. I'd, I had gone from having a lot of fun with people outside the church and doing things that um, obviously aren't approved of within the church or, or by the Savior and his gospel. And I'd given all those things up. My best friends I no longer had contact with because they were still participating in those activities. I mean, I would, I'd still call and still go to their house for birthdays and things, but it wasn't a constant uh, being around them like I was before. How long had you been in the church by this time? Um, this this major crisis began to kind of onset probably about six years ago or so, um, five or six years ago. Okay, and what were you doing in the church? What was your calling? I was a counselor in the bishopric, and not too long after that, I was called to be a bishop. Um, and so I'm in the midst of this severe faith crisis um, at, while serving as a bishop. And I have to kind of preface saying that with this. Again, most of the time, things were good, and I was comfortable in my testimony. But there would be days or weeks where I was really struggling um, to the point where there were even moments over the last few years where I thought about um, calling my stake president and, and asking him to be released. I had pondered several times about um, resigning from the church. 
And so, yeah, go, go, now, go ahead. Well, when you talk about you encountered polyandry for the first time and, and that you have these issues, where is it you're encountering these issues? Are, are you still, I guess, involved on the Internet? And is that what's, you know, where this is coming from? Yeah, I don't, I don't know offhand if I was um, looking at something on the fair site or... And, and two, I would bounce around. I wouldn't spend time looking at anti-Mormon sites. But if I came across something that gave me a question, I would go into the go on the internet, find a search engine, and I would type in whatever issue it was I'm trying to find. And whatever the top you know ten results were, I would click onto them and try to find as much information as I could. And so I'm not focusing my energy at this time on anti-Mormon material. I don't think I ever did that. But I certainly would not avoid them either, if that makes sense. I would I would try to get um, as much of a round about understanding of the issue from both sides. Okay. And so what it is, you'd come across an issue, it would shake your faith, you would continue researching that and maybe kind of push through that after a few you know, days or weeks, and then you'd come across some other issue. Correct. And so I would fix that, but in the process of fixing one issue, you're always bound to come across something else as you're reading online. It's just... It's almost the nature of the beast. If you're looking up Mormonism on the Internet and you're working your way through a difficult issue, you can't help but come across where, again, we talked about earlier about these, these sites that are critical. And even even within FAIR, as you go to FAIR and you're looking for answers, if I go into the FAIR index, I see everything there all on one page. And so while I may be struggling with one issue, I also have the opportunity to click on other things that maybe I wasn't as aware of and try to try to find out what's going on with them as well. And the, the critical sites are that much worse because they're just throwing it all on you, trying to say, hey, here's this problem. Well, that doesn't bother you. Well, here's a 100 more. And so, yeah, the Internet, um, for one who's trying to get to the bottom of one issue and put it behind him, becomes almost near impossible with all the, the available resources online. So did you reach out to any of your local church leaders and talk to them about your concerns? I didn't. I was afraid to. Here I am. I'm the guy who is aware of all this stuff. So how do I go to somebody who doesn't know these things and talk to them about the problems that I'm I'm having? How do I go to um, my stake president? How do I go to other members of my ward and say, hey, here's this issue and I'm really struggling with understanding this, and when they don't even know what the issue is, and all of a sudden I'm opening a, opening a whole box of worms for them, a whole can of worms for them. They, I didn't feel like that was fair for me to put my burden on their shoulders and take the risk of hurting their testimony. So for a long time, um, I didn't say anything at all. I just kept it to myself. I didn't even tell my wife that at times I was struggling. So you were going to you know sites like FAIR, and... You know, you research polyandry or um, seer stones or whatever the issue is, and you're finding responses to some of these issues. Um, how did that, or or did that help? Well, I would go on fair from time to time, and I would send I would send them a question on the ask an apolo the apologist link, and so I would ask things. And right away, I would get an individual, two or three, who would send me back an answer. And their answers were, were well stated. Their answers gave links to other things on your site and, and fair site and other places where the information could be found and one could research things and kind of come to their own conclusions. The trouble was is I was feeling a lot of hurt, anxiety, frustration, and I and because I'm holding it in and not really talking to anybody in my ward or in my stake about it or to anybody in my family, um, I didn't really have a way to find a resolution for that. And I don't know that on FAIR or other places on the Internet, even within like a chat room talking to somebody, that there's a, a lot of ways out there to address the feelings that, that individuals are having when they're having this frustration. So it sounds like that at the time you were really yearning for some kind of a personal connection. Correct. I, when I ask a question, I had already known the question, and I already knew the information, and I already knew the answers. 
but there was an underlying feeling of feeling betrayed and an underlying feeling of, uh oh, maybe all of this isn't true. And look at all that I've invested in this and my whole family and, and everything is wrapped up in the church and maybe it isn't true. And there's all this hurt that comes along with that. And there really isn't, there really isn't a way to, or at least I didn't find a way at the time to address that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, from the perspective of fair trying to help people that maybe there's something more that people can do at fair to reach out to people on a personal level, but that maybe the, the value in the information that fair provides is in helping maybe family members or friends or church leaders to have some of these answers you know, in their in their quiver, you know. So when they go out and they talk to somebody like you who's who's struggling, that they can make a personal connection and, and they're armed with some responses to some of these issues. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think a lot of times when people contact FAIR or other places to try and find answers, sometimes people will say, hey, I'm just asking a question and here's here's my question. And so you send an answer back. Other times people may come on and they may have a little bit of a frustrated tone. They may say things in such a way that you can tell there's some hurt there. And I think in those instances, I think the, answering the question is great, but I think on a personal level you've got to find a way to connect with them and to address why they feel the way they do and to find some kind of commonality, uh, maybe someone else who's experienced a faith crisis, maybe it's hey, I had a difficult time with this issue or that issue, and this is how I overcame it. And just giving them some background on what it is on a personal level that they need to do to work through that. Yeah, that's a good point. So was there anybody in your experience that made that kind of connection with you where you felt like, uh, okay, this person understands what I'm going through? Maybe they don't answer the questions per se, but there's somebody there that says, yeah, I understand, hang in there. Sure, there were several different things that happened and I don't I don't think a lot of these were just a coincidence. So along this path and again a lot of the time I'm feeling great but then there are also weeks on end where it is absolutely painful. And so I begin to kind of realize that first and foremost that there's evidence on both sides that the church isn't certainly false and isn't certainly true and that I got to somehow find my way to get off the fence on this. And so I'm praying about it, I'm reading scriptures, I'm pondering on things. The first thing that happened was I felt an impression to just put this stuff aside for a little while. And I went online and started looking up uh, any um, MP3 files on talks that were given on the atonement, on the doctrine of Christ, specifically grace. And as I began to... Um, look those things up. I found some wonderful talks by Robert Millett, Brad Wilcox, Gerald Lund, uh, Elder McConkie, that talked about the doctrine of Christ in such a way that helped me kind of slow down and take my intellectual testimony and begin to realize that that wasn't first and foremost, that if I was going to move forward in the church, I had to have a solid spiritual testimony. And I think sometimes we gloss over this. People will say they've had spiritual experiences and I had those, and yet, because I focused so much on the intellectual, much of my testimony was an intellectual testimony. And so it wasn't that I hadn't had experiences with the Holy Ghost, but they weren't the things that held my testimony together. And so in the process of looking at uh, Grace and the talks on that, I put a bunch of these on my MP3 player, and I would listen to them back and forth to work. And slowly... I begin to gain a spiritual testimony. I begin to, instead of believing in the church and then having a testimony of Christ, I had this firm testimony of the Savior uh, and begin to put my, found, my foundation, my testimony, kind of in the right place. And so going from there, I felt an impression as I'm still kind of pondering on, on whether the church is true or not. I feel an impression to write one of the general authorities of the church. And I ignored it at first. Even in serving as a bishop, I'm, I'm well aware that the handbook tells us that we are to try to refrain from writing general authorities because obviously they're, they're 15 men at the top and there's uh, several million of us members of the church and there really isn't the ability to address 
every person who has a desire to write a general authority. And so I put that thought out of my head and, and I tried to go forward, but it kept pressing on me for a couple of weeks. And so after, uh, after kind of just coming to terms with it and saying, you know what, I'm feeling an impression. This is, this is the right thing to do. I, uh, took some time one day at work on my lunch break and wrote a letter to Elder Holland and, uh, sent him a letter. It was basically me saying, look, I don't, I'm not mad at anybody, but man, I'm hurt. I'm kind of in the midst of this dark night. I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do. I'm contemplating, uh, leaving the church. I, I have some things which testify the church is true. I have other things that make me concerned that it isn't, and I don't know what to do. And so I sent that off. And I didn't get an answer right away. It was actually uh, a couple of weeks before I heard back. And in the meantime, I decided to go to a discussion board online that came from a apologetic or faithful perspective. And I went on this discussion board and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm at the end, I'm on the last straw, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw my questions out there. And yes, they had some sarcasm to them, they had a little bit of attitude to them. But I'm going to go ahead and throw all my questions out there and I'm going to see if these guys can give me some answers. And some of the answers were, they were frustrated with me and, and I could tell that. They were, they were assuming I was an anti-Mormon or a troll just kind of going through the internet trying to give them a hard time. They did, they kind of doubted whether I was a member of the church or not. And, and I give them that. My tone wasn't the nicest. And so as I'm asking these questions and trying to get answers, a couple of them are having that kind of response to me, but several of them are taking time to write me these wonderful, long, beautiful responses on on how to deal with critical material and how to deal with my feelings. And so I began to see that, hey, I'm not, you know, whereas in my ward, I'm the one person who knows this stuff, I begin to realize that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of members of the church who are aware of these things. And so I realized I wasn't alone. That was a big step, to just realize I wasn't on my own. And so going uh, from there, a couple of weeks later, I get a uh, a phone call from Elder Marlon Jensen. And Elder Jensen had received a note from Elder Holland asking uh, him to contact me and to talk to me. And so I'm driving home one day, and I pull into my driveway, and Elder Jensen calls, and I talk to him in my driveway for 35, 40 minutes. And just bare my soul to him. Just tell him how I feel and where I'm at. What what kind of things were you telling him? Just, I said, you know, hey, these these are the issues I have. I don't necessarily expect a... A perfect answer from you, but these are the things I'm struggling with. This is why. You remember, you remember which, uh, you know, just I guess um, topics or sure, Book of Abraham, DNA, essentially holding a prophet up to a certain standard and expecting a certain expectation from our leaders, and realizing that over time that there were certain things they had said or little things that they had done that came off to me as not fitting my expectation of them. Um. So, for example, the revelation in 1978 for African Americans receiving the priesthood, or essentially all worthy males receiving the priesthood, I had gone back and at some time read some of the things that uh, Brigham Young or Elder McConkie had said about that, and was really bothered by it, and essentially expected prophets and apostles to meet an expectation that I had set that perhaps wasn't realistic, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I'm throwing all this on Elder Jensen, and for a while he just simply says, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm aware of those things as well, and you know, some of these things we're working to try and provide better answers for. Um, some of these things we need to uh, find ways to address so that as members of the church are encountering these things on the internet, that they have places they can go and." and find good answers. But most importantly, we kind of finish off the last 10 minutes of talking, um, him sim- simply telling me how much he cares about me, how much he's concerned about me and other members of the church who have this struggle, and and how much importance faith plays in this whole process of having opportunities to grow through adversity. Um, and so we concluded that phone call. I was in tears 
I went into the house and talked to my wife about the phone call I had received. Up to this point, maybe a few weeks prior, I had not talked to my wife about any of this. In a couple of weeks prior to Elder Jensen's phone call, I had taken her aside and said, hey, I just want you to know I'm really struggling right now. You know, I'd say, hey, I, I, I'll go a week being fine, and all of a sudden I'll have a day where I want to I wanna be released from my calling and I want to quit the church. And she would, she would empathize with that. She cared about my feelings. She was talking about how I felt, but she also wouldn't let me uh, throw my case against the church at her. She didn't. She didn't care to hear that. She, she was empathetic. She was listening. She was willing to give me her ear, but at the same time, too, she wasn't. She wasn't letting me put the church on defense, on the defensive, um, and so. That was appreciative. I think maybe just a word of counsel out there for family members of those who are struggling. You you sometimes feel the need to to separate yourself from them or to push them away. And I think that sometimes is about the worst thing you can do. People who are struggling in, with their faith need someone to be able to talk to. And so my wife was a great, um, great listener. And wonderful at being able to say, "Hey, I really understand. I really understand you're hurting, and I want you to do all you can to work your way out of it. And I'll support you no matter what conclusion you come to." And she reassured me that whatever decision I came to, our relationship wouldn't change because of that. And that was wow. Crucial. So you didn't sense from her any kind of um, you know panic or disappointment? Not or, not at I all. Guess, judgment. No. In fact, I expected that. And that's not what I got. I I had held off talking to her for so long because I had feared that that I would get this negative response from her, and it was absolutely not the response I got. And so I was, I'm quite appreciative of the way she handled that. Mm, that's impressive. So going from kind of that point, um, one of the other things that I uh, had done too was I had gone onto the Internet, and because I... I'm one of these guys, I just I want to find things that I can listen to as I'm driving back and forth to work. And so I found several podcasts online that did interviews with both members of the church from a faithful perspective, and some of these did interviews as well with uh, people who were critical of the church. And so some of the interviews that I listened to were those of Terrell Givens, uh, Richard Bushman, Daniel Peterson, and others. And it was just one more way to realize that there were intellectual people out there who knew all the issues from Mormon history, who had no problem talking about them, giving suggestions on their take on them, ways that they answered the questions, and at the end of the day, falling on a faithful perspective and having a testimony of the church, that these things essentially didn't, didn't change their, their faith in, in, in the restored gospel. Right. And so how did it affect you to hear those podcasts uh, of people who you know, were critical of the church? Well, when you're frustrated and having a faith crisis, you feel betrayed, you feel a bunch of angst over all these things running through your mind, you're worried that at some point you may have to decide to leave the church, you don't want to feel alone. And so sometimes having these people who are critical of the church gave you this justification that um, you're justified in feeling bitter. You're justified in feeling upset. You're justified in being mad. And I think at times that does more harm than good. It's so, it's so easy sometimes to be in the midst of a group that sees things the way you see things. And even though that group might be a very small minority, it, it sometimes makes you feel like it's the majority because that's all you see. And you begin to feel like the way you feel is okay and that maybe your feelings are absolutely justified and permitted and there's no reason to change them. Thank you for listening to the Mormon Faircast. If there is an issue that you've been wondering about, you can often find the latest answers at the Fair Wiki, found at fairmormon.org. If you can't find your answer there, feel free to pose your question to the Fair Apologists by visiting the Fair Contact page. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. Tell your friends about us and help increase the popularity of this podcast by subscribing in iTunes and by writing a review. 
Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Paul Cardall. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of FAIR.